following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing March 16th, 2018. What were the real motivations behind the U.S. war on Vietnam? What happened during the My Lai massacre and how did it alter public perception of the war? How have governments attempted to combat anti-war sentiment since Vietnam? What lessons can we draw from My Lai 50 years later? Did Canada play a quiet role in aiding and abetting that war? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we commemorate the anniversary of one of the most horrific war crimes of the Vietnam era, the My Lai Massacre, with three related interviews. History professor Christian Oppie provides us an overview of My Lai within the context of the Vietnam War and its impact on the American psyche. We hear from retired U.S. Army colonel turned peace activist Anne Wright about her visit to My Lai on that anniversary. And we hear from prominent Canadian foreign policy critic Eve Engler about Canada's underreported support for America's military adventures in the South Asian country. On this week's program, My Lai 50 Years Later, Reflections on the Vietnam War and its Meaning Today. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 16, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. In a bitter irony, Colin Powell, who was responsible for the cover-up of the My Lai massacre, acceded to a brilliant career in the armed forces. In 2001, he was appointed Secretary of State in the Bush administration, Although never indicted, Powell was also deeply implicated in the Iran-Contra affair. It is worth noting that Colin Powell was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time of the Gulf War, which resulted in the deaths of thousands of retreating Iraqi soldiers in what British war correspondent Felicity Arbuthnot entitled Operation Desert Slaughter. Quote, the 42-day carpet bombing enjoined by 32 other countries against a country of just 25 million souls with a youthful conscript army with broadly half the population under 16 and no air force was just the beginning of a United Nations-led global siege of near medieval ferocity, unquote. That comes from the introduction by Michel Chosodovsky under the headline, Cover-up of extensive war crimes, 50th anniversary of the My Lai Massacre, posted March 16th. World leaders must settle their disputes through dialogue. Thus, I urge the Human Rights Council to appoint a special rapporteur for the human rights situation in Iraq. I urge the United Nations to condemn illegal acts of aggression, torture, and mass killings, including those committed by powerful countries like the United States. And I ask my countrymen and women in America to walk back from the abyss of empire. 
we have a special duty to hold our leaders responsible, to make redress to the Iraqi people, and to promote and sustain the global peace. That comes from a statement given by Inder Komar at a side event of the 37th regular session of the UN Human Rights Committee in Geneva, Switzerland on March 15, 2018, under the headline, U.S.-U.K. Crime of Aggression Against Iraq 2003. War was not conducted in self-defense. Posted March 16th. Anything the West wants to bomb, be it in Syria, Iraq, or potentially Iran, Lebanon, Yemen, or even Afghanistan, in Cyrillic is there, with perfect infrastructure and a fantastic geographical location. For NATO, a dream come true place, really. But only until recently, until Mr. Erdogan's era, until the 2016 failed coup and the consequent incomprehensible but real Turkish rebellion. Suddenly, Turkey is not trusted anymore, at least not in the Western capitals. That is perhaps very good for Turkey and its future, but definitely not for NATO. That comes from the article, Why Are NATO Air Forces Moving from Turkey to Jordan? by Andrei Vilcik, posted March 15th. It is without any doubts that the U.S. foreign policy after 1989 is still unrealistically following the French concept of raison d'état that indicates the realist justification for policies pursued by state authority, but in the American eyes, first and foremost of these justifications or criteria is the U.S. global hegemony as the best guarantee for the national security, followed by all other interests and associated goals. Therefore, the U.S. foreign policy is based on a real politic concept that is a German term referring to the state foreign policy ordered or motivated by power politics. The strong do what they will, and the weak do what they must. However, the U.S. is becoming weaker and weaker, and Russia and China are more and more becoming stronger and stronger. Finally, it seems to be true that such a reality in contemporary global politics and international relations is properly understood and recognized by a newly elected U.S. President Donald Trump. If he is going not to be just another Trojan horse of the U.S. neocon concept of Pax Americana, there are real chances to get rid of the U.S. imperialism in the nearest future and to establish international relations on a more democratic foundation. That comes from the article, Pax Americana versus Russia. Is there an end to U.S. imperialism? By Dr. Vladislav B. Sotirovich. Posted March 15th, originally appearing at Oriental Review. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The Vietnam War's impact on America was legendary. 58,000 U.S. soldiers killed, millions of Vietnamese and Cambodians slaughtered, 
The anniversary of the infamous My Lai massacre is cause for reflection on not only that incident, but the entirety of the war and its aftermath. The Global Research News Hour had a chance to open up a conversation recently with a renowned academic expert on the subject. Christian Oppie is professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of three books about the American war in Vietnam, including his most recent American Reckoning, The Vietnam War and Our National Identity. He joins us now from Amherst, Massachusetts. Good to have you on the program, Professor Oppie. Thanks for having me, Michael. Now, I think uh, this being the uh, 50th anniversary of the My Lai Massacre, uh, I, I wanted to, first of all, put the My Lai Massacre in its proper context, the Vietnam War. You point out that the war was propelled by a narrative of American exceptionalism and that America's involvement in Vietnam was initially sold to the American people as an act of benevolence toward the Vietnamese people. Could you maybe just, first of all, give us a, a, an overview of what the actual economic and political interests at stake were for the U.S., which were being masked by this facade of humanitarian concern? Well, in the decades after World War II, the United States uh, clearly wanted to maintain its uh, global preeminence, and um, it justified its assertion of military power around the globe, of course, on the grounds that it was engaged in a global contest with aggressive communism, and therefore needed to come to the aid of small countries around the world who uh, were resisting this kind of aggression. But uh, clearly the United States um, was determined to um, shore up um, capitalist allies um, around the world. And in, in the Pacific, um, the concern, uh, the primary concern was of finding uh, allies uh, uh, along with Japan, the main ally. And in terms of the economic underpinning of intervention in Vietnam, it's, it's a little tricky um, or, or complicated because there was not, as there was in the Middle East, an obvious economic um, resource or uh, motivation in Vietnam itself. But there clearly was a desire to uh, build a, um, uh, an economic structure throughout the Pacific so that... Um, not just the United States, but Japan and the Philippines and other uh, American uh, uh, allies or uh, sort of semi-protectorates, uh, or in the case of the Philippines, who's just a recent colony, um, that they would have trading partners and that there would be a strong capitalist economy throughout that region. And you'll remember, of course, the domino theory, which most people think of as just a sort of a political idea that if communism uh, is, uh, is allowed to uh, develop and flourish in one country, the, the neighboring country will automatically fall to a communist regime. But that's also an economic theory, the idea being if that one country goes communist, you're going to lose economic access, not only to that country, but potentially the, the neighboring countries as well. Throughout the 60s, in the lead-up to Milai, the, the nobility of the American cause was, was already starting to be questioned. I mean, was it not? Yeah, that's one of the great achievements of the anti-war movement was to raise these fundamental questions about the official justifications of the war. Uh, it was ever more uh, evident that the um, the regime in South Vietnam was not an independent nation, but was in fact uh, entirely dependent on U.S. economic and military support. And had the United States not intervened in the 1950s, 
uh, the United, uh, Vietnam would have been reunited under one government, as it was called for by the Geneva Accords of 1954. Uh, there was never to be uh, two permanent uh, separate Vietnams, uh, but that was, in fact, the American mission for 21 years, was to build and bolster a permanent non-communist country called South Vietnam. And it was also ever more evident that uh, South Vietnam was nothing, uh, nothing like a democracy, um, but in fact uh, repressed dissent and acted very much like um, a police state. Uh, and it did not, most importantly, uh, did not have the sufficient support of its own people to stand in the, you know, uh, to, to be able to, um, to, def- to maintain itself um, without massive American support. So all of those realities were becoming um, um, more, um, more known to the American public uh, even before the My Lai Massacre uh, was exposed uh, uh, in, the, in the press some 20 months after the massacre actually took place exactly 50 years ago today. There, there was Muhammad Ali's statement, and listener advisory, I'm going to use the N-word here. Muhammad Ali's statement about refusing to fight in Vietnam was seen as a big problem for U.S. war planners say, when he said, no Viet Cong ever called us nigger, and essentially that this was a white man's war. And of course, there was Martin Luther King, uh, as you pointed out in your article, linking the struggle for racial justice in America with the peace movement and, uh, and the divisions along the lines of race and class uh, uh, among the fighting men on the front, uh, which, which were becoming quite evident. Could you comment on how critical was that racial dimension in under continuing to undermine the narrative and as well as general popular support for the war? It was very critical uh, precisely because uh, Americans, and not just African Americans, but uh, all Americans were, were beginning to see the racial significance of the war both in Vietnam and at home and making those connections. Uh, the war um, did uh, have a uh, clearly a, a racial component in the sense that the major uh, American um, measurement of success in Vietnam was the infamous body count. That is to say, uh, the U.S. military uh, did not uh, seek to gain territory or secure it or did not measure its success by how many, uh, uh, you know, uh, South Vietnamese uh, uh, sided with the Americans, but primarily measured success based on how many uh, enemy soldiers were killed. And with that as the uh, incentive, uh, when, when civilian losses, when civilians were killed, uh, they were often included in the body count as, as if they that had been, uh, you know, they, they were enemy that had successfully been defeated. Um, so uh, this was also um, stimulated increasingly by a kind of a racial demonization of the Asian enemy, for which there were a lot of historical antecedents going uh, back at least as far as the the war to, to conquer the Philippines uh, at the turn of the uh, 20th century. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, then on forward from that uh, in the Pacific War, the very brutal Pacific War during World War II against the Japanese and then the war in Korea as well. So the, uh, the G word, you know, referring to, to Vietnamese as gooks, it was already well in place before Vietnam. And, um, you know, it, it led to this very uh, crude sort of attitude in the field, summarized by a kind of slogan, which is that uh, if it's, uh, it was sometimes, uh, you know, said, often said actually by uh, American soldiers, if it's Vietnamese and it's dead, it's Viet Cong, 
meaning we don't have to be too fussy about whether the, the, the Vietnamese body is actually uh, a, a, a fighter uh, as long as uh, it's Vietnamese, we'll call it that. Which gets us to My Lai. Fifty mm-hmm. years ago today, a squadron known as Charlie Company descended on this small hamlet, and uh, they'd been given information that it was occupied uh, by Viet Cong planning an attack, and that information turned out to be fraudulent. Could you remind our listeners of uh, some of what happened on that day 50 years ago? Well, you set it up correctly. Um, this, this company in the um, Americal Division had been told by their, um, their captain the night before in a kind of pep talk that uh, they had intelligence that uh, when they entered this village the next morning, they would be facing a, a very substantial force of, of, of Viet Cong and that therefore there would be an opportunity finally to, um, to get vengeance on an enemy that had, um, that had successfully killed a number of men in that particular unit through sniper fire and uh, landmines. And uh, beyond that, the captain also said, so when you go into that village, uh, you sh- you know, nothing should live, when, uh, nothing should, should still be alive when we leave that village. Uh, accounts differ on exactly what the words were, but very much got the impression that uh, that they were being uh, ordered to wipe out this entire village. Um, but when so when they did go in the next day, what has to be remembered is it wasn't a kind of uh, very rapid, spontaneous um, massacre. It was much more uh, systematic and took place over a, a period of four hours. And, um, in fact, there was no hostile fire whatsoever. The American soldiers came into that village. There, there were, the, the villages were primarily women and children and babies and older men. There were not military-aged uh, Vietnamese in the village. They were unarmed and they were unresisting. And uh, the, the, not everyone participated in the massacre, but dozens of uh, soldiers did. Uh, sometimes at the beginning, uh, they, they were killing people in small uh, numbers out in the fields, but as they got into the village proper, they began to round people up in, uh, uh, in, in groups and, and put them down into uh, uh, ditches uh, and, uh, and uh, fired upon them. But beyond that, it was, it was um, uh, one of the, I mean, in addition to the sheer uh, uh, murder, of these people, they were engaged in uh, mutilations and many r- rapes, and uh, ultimately killed some 500 uh, uh, Vietnamese civilians. And in the after-action reports filed by American officers, uh, there was an auto- immediate cover-up of what had happened. And indeed, they reported that uh, uh, the Charlie Company had actually engaged in a successful firefight against enemy troops killing 128, they just invented this, this figure out of thin air, 128 enemy soldiers were killed. And um, that appeared actually the next day in the New York Times. There were no uh, journalists no, uh, on the spot to counter the official after-action report, so that for the next 20 months, the massacre was successfully uh, hidden from the American public. Uh, but there was, in fact, um, there were a couple of reasons why it got exposed. Uh, one was that an, um, an American uh, soldier who was in Vietnam, not there that day at My Lai, um, ran into some guys who, who were at My Lai, who he had trained with, and uh, heard stories about it. And he was appalled. 
so that when he came back to the United States, this, is, this man was named Ron Ridenauer, he uh, decided to write a very detailed letter about what he had heard and send it to authorities in Washington, anybody he could think to in the Pentagon and uh, Congress. And, uh, that did finally lead to a, a military investigation, and um, which was, you know, no one was really paying much attention to it down in Georgia until Seymour Hearst, the investigative reporter, started to, to pick up on it. And then finally, some uh, photographs emerged that were taken by uh, not a civilian journalist, but by a military photographer whose assignment was to follow this unit and take photographs. And he had saved some. Instead of turning them all over to the military, he had saved some and brought them home, and, and they were published by a, a Cleveland newspaper and then ultimately in Life magazine and then in newspapers all over the world. Now, I mean... I think in the abstract, you you can hardly argue that this one instance was any more destructive than the the bombing and the napalming and then the you know Agent Orange and other things that were being used. But I think that the the, the very inhumanity that was demonstrated here that that so much goes against this narrative that you know the the Americans are out to bring peace and democracy and freedom and whatnot are so, is so dramatically contradicted by me lie that I, I think Americans couldn't help but be shocked by the revelations there were also these thousands of Americans who insisted on defending uh, 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 William Cayley who was the, the leader of the expedition and, and basically turned into he was turned into a kind of a martyr when they uh, you know uh, arrested him and, and, and tried him uh, of course there's also the uh, you know I, I think in, in one of the case there's a family member of uh, one of the participants in Milai uh, who uh, mother uh, who ex of uh, this uh, Meadlo, uh, who was uh, you know, expressing disgust with their country, and at the end of the chapter in your book where you mention Milai, you quote uh, her saying, uh, her Meadlo's mother saying, "I raised him up to be a good boy and did everything I could. They come along and took him to the service. He fought for his country, and look what they done to him. Made him a murderer." So could I just get you to comment on that uh, that diversity of, of responses in, in reaction to that? Uh... Yeah, I think you've, you put it really well. I mean, yes, I do think the, the greatest number of Vietnamese civilians killed by the American military were killed by indiscriminate bombing, not face-to-face -face executions. But the, uh, the My massacre was not uh, entirely exceptional. We just don't know any that took place at that scale. Uh, and... Um, it was um, it was so shocking to the American public that many, at first anyway, began denied it entirely. This couldn't have happened. This couldn't have been done by American boys. This has to be some kind of uh, propaganda photographs that have, uh, or the, an atrocity that actually committed by the enemy. Uh, but even you know, gradually, of course, the evidence was overwhelming and undeniable. But um, Americans uh, were uh, many of them uh, tr tried every possible uh, way to explain it away including the standard argument that, you know, in war, there will always be uh, atrocities. And this sort of thing is done by all sides, and even worse, by our enemies. And, you know, what, one of the things that really interests me about that response is that, um, uh, not, not just that it's, it's intended to try to somehow exonerate uh, American troops, but once you have, once you have admitted that, uh, you know, all countries, all cultures, all, all people are capable of that kind of evil, you really have kind of thrown out the window the very premise of American exceptionalism. 
which is, uh, you know, at the at the heart of which is this idea that Americans are uniquely virtuous and that put and they put a higher price on life than other countries or cultures. So if in fact everybody does it, uh, you're kind of making a a giant con- concession. I mean, it's also a way of of, of uh, you know um, not taking seriously the responsibility of both, you know, the, the individuals who are doing it, but certainly the, the more important responsibilities of the, the policymakers that are, are, are putting uh, troops into those situations and in, in various ways through their policies, making uh, these kinds of slaughters uh, inevitable. Not inevitable that everybody would do it, but inevitable that large numbers of civilians under these circumstances would be killed. Now, we bringing us up to the present, we, uh, you know, we've seen efforts by the, the, the mandarins in the halls of power in Washington. They are determined to uh, execute those, uh, you know, those various, you know, capitalist and, and, and foreign policy mandates that, uh, that we discussed like earlier in the interview. And they, they, they want to re- return to that militarism uh, and we're seeing it being displayed, but they've got to overcome Vietnam. Could you, you know, explain the ways in which they've managed to? Yeah, that's 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 a huge question. But one element of it that I would mention that I think has been very effectively encouraged over the decades since the Vietnam War a way really of kind of forgetting uh, about the, the worst of the war um, uh, is to um, rehabilitate the image of the military and those who serve it. So uh, one of the obvious uh, things about American culture, particularly since 9-11, is this sort of ritualistic um, way in which we honor military service and we, how we, could, we, we confer on everyone who's in the military an automatic kind of hero status, regardless of of what they do or how they behave, um, we are in a variety of ways um, deferring to them and honoring them. But not, you know, often the very empty gestures, you know, these kinds of uh, flyovers at at uh, sporting events, or uh, you know, thank you for your service, you know, routinely said to uh, soldiers and, and veterans. And at the same time um, that we're doing that, over the last. Few, um, the decades since Vietnam, there's also been a tendency in our culture and politics to demonize uh, the anti-war movement, which was, after all, the, the most vibrant, diverse, uh, and extraordinary uh, in our history, uh, but to reduce it to a sort of a stereo, crude stereotype of people that were really um, seeking uh, only to save their own skin and uh, were, um, uh, in fact, you know, as it was claimed, uh, not just disrespectful to the flag and to the nation, but uh, you know, really cruel in the way they treated returning veterans. You know, the sort of mythology about uh, you know, largely fictional uh, uh, ideas of meant, meant really to demonize this mo- this uh, anti-war movement, and therefore the legacies of that that dissent to try to quiet uh, dissent in the present. So uh, just to close, I mean, the, the, the need for an anti-war movement is as urgent as ever. What advice would you give to those who, who wish to see the, the anti-war movement uh, remobilized as it was in the Vietnam era? Well, I, mostly to suggest to them that uh, while it didn't end the war um, immediately, and, and many feel that it was only a, a partial success, it did finally end the war, and it, uh, it, it, it did bring down uh, two presidents, 
uh, and that uh, it provided a model of extraordinary activism, not just the anti-war movement, but all the movements of the 60s, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the environmental movement. And, and now we're seeing, I think, among younger people, uh, a, a new emergence of activism. I mean, most recently with these uh, student high school walkouts over the uh, uh, prompted by the most recent uh, school shooting um, in, in Florida. And uh, I think if um, young people can can make connections to older activists, uh, and more than that, make connections to other movements, we really have the prospects uh, for some real change. I mean, I'm hopeful that Black Lives Matter and domestic efforts for social justice will merge with movements uh, for global climate justice and uh, uh, sort of anti-imperial efforts to rein in American uh, military aggression and, uh, throughout the world. So it's a big, you know, obviously that's a <laughs> a huge uh, project, but um, I do think that there is less cynicism than there was some years ago about the possibility of, uh, of forcing a, a change. Uh, I think there, for a long time we've lived in this uh, environment where many people have felt that the, the powers that make war are, are so impervious to dissent and uh, have a, a kind of life of their own that there's nothing ordinary citizens can can do uh, to check that power, uh, but I'm I'm hopeful that 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 is actually uh, beginning to to change. Professor Oppie, we really value your insights. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing them with us. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking with University of Massachusetts Amherst Professor of History Christian Oppie. He specializes on the Vietnam War and has written three books on the subject, including his most recent American Reckoning, Reckoning, The Vietnam War and Our National Identity, published by Viking Press. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio stations, CKUW 95.9 FM, and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. Okay, so this is Michael Welch for the Global Research News Hour. And uh, right now, uh, as this program goes to air on March 16th, exactly 50 years after the notorious event known as the My Lai Massacre, a number of Americans spent the day today in the actual village, which has been turned into a monument commemorating the victims who perished in that slaughter. One of them is retired Colonel Anne Wright. She's now an outspoken critic of America's military adventures for more and has been for more than a decade. She's active with Veterans for Peace, and her delegation is delivering a letter of apology to the people of Vietnam. And she uh, joins us from Vietnam. And right, it's, it's good to have you join us. Um, well, thank you, Michael. Good to be with you. Could you give us the scoop on uh, what you participated in earlier today? Yes, uh, today I was with a group of Veterans for Peace, an international organization of veterans who are opposed to war, and we were at uh, My Lai, one of four villages that uh, the U.S. military, U.S. Army personnel uh, went into on March 16, uh, 1968. And at the end of a four-hour rampage, had killed 504 civilians. Uh, we were there to, as veterans uh, of the U.S. military, to give our apologies to the Vietnamese people, as you say. Uh, and to uh, 
uh, uh, acknowledge uh, the deaths of 182 women, including 17 pregnant women, 173 children, including 68 that were under the age of five, uh, 89 middle-aged people, and 60, 60 people that were over the age of 60. So this horrific slaughter is something that is uh, certainly a horrific stain on the uh, uh, the U.S., uh, the United States, as well as its military, and our apologies for um, uh, the least we could do for that uh, terrible, terrible massacre. Uh, and I'm curious to know what was going through your mind having visited that site. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the horrors, I mean, historically and reading about it, but I, I'm wondering... Were there any unexpected feelings that rose up within you being at that the scene of the crime, so to speak? Well, seeing all the uh, Vietnamese that had come to the, to the uh, commemoration and just thinking of them as uh, potentially you know, people that could have been there on that day. And we saw a lot of uh, older people that were there uh, who... Uh, some of whom I'm sure were around in those villages and survived that that horrific time. We also saw a lot of very young kids there, and thinking about them and how how in the world could uh, our U.S. military troops have killed all of these kids? I mean, 173 of them were just kids, and thinking of uh, uh, young men. 18, 19, 20 years old, who seemed to have no problem uh, with murdering these little kids. It just was it's beyond belief what, uh, what, they, uh, what they did. And um, scanning the major U.S. media this morning, I've so far seen very little reference to the My Lai anniversary. And, you know, when the, the anniversary is mentioned, it's hardly front-page news uh, or a top story. What does it say to you as a former soldier and as a peace activist that Americans will faithfully mourn and mark the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, but they hardly seem to acknowledge the anniversary of My Lai? Well, it's true. I think it's, uh, it's one of those things that I think most Americans would just like to sweep under the carpet. It's uh, such a shame and embarrassment that... Uh, I think uh, our media uh, that did not cover the massacre. I mean, it was a lo- it was well over a year before uh, uh, Seymour Hersh wrote wrote an article about it, and uh, the mainstream media that should have really been covering that and and digging into it much earlier didn't. So I think uh, the for for the American public and the American media, uh, they just would like to forget it. And yet we can't because it's the it's the basis really for many of the other things that have happened. I mean, if you think of uh, Abu Ghraib, the prison in in uh, Iraq, uh, when you think of Guantanamo and things that our military have done to people uh, over the, even the last eighteen years, I think a lot of it can be traced back to the fact that those who were involved in this massacre really got no punishment at all. Hmm. 
um, from what I've seen of, of the site in, in videos and, and photographs, it, it seems like the depictions of the massacre are uh, justifiably very sympathetic to the victims, the Vietnamese victims, while the American soldiers are portrayed like monsters. And I'm not saying that's inappropriate, but I imagine that as a peaceful person myself, if that was my introduction to the American people, I would hate Americans for what they did to my country. How, in, in, from what you've uh, experienced, how receptive are, are visiting Americans to this site? Well, it is remarkable how the Vietnamese people, after uh, the United States uh, uh, killed three million of them, how, how we are received here. And it's with uh, grace and courtesy and respect. And the Vietnamese say, we look forward, not backward, but we appeal to you not to do this to anyone else. And, of course, the United States has done done the same thing to other countries since then. In fact, uh, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and Syria and Libya, the United States continues to um, to kill civilians and their appeal, the appeal of the Vietnamese people to us as American citizens to try to stop this warmongering of our, of our country, um, it makes me feel sad that we're not able to, to stop our country. It continues to be a war, warring country, and we kill innocent civilians um, frequently. Right now, the United States is, is uh, killing people in seven countries. So I'm afraid the appeal of the Vietnamese people for us to, to not do to others that what we have done to them uh, has fallen on deaf ears. Has this encounter from earlier today left you more or less optimistic about uh, the future of humanity? Well, it, it leaves me optimistic that people can forgive, and the Vietnamese are, uh, have forgiven uh, uh, the United States. Um, but it, it, it leaves me pessimistic about our ability to influence our own country uh, to stop doing this to others. Uh, and it, it really reinforces our commitment as Veterans for Peace to continue our work and to try our very best to uh, to work to make sure that uh, people people who come into office, uh, who are elected into office, uh, um, are not warmongers. But we're not having any luck in that. Mm. So uh, it's hurtful in that way. Yeah, I, I know you have to go in a minute, but I, I just wanted to like one more point. I know there's a big military parade planned for uh, November 11th, Armistice Day, uh, Veterans Day, as you call it, in the United States. So I, I'm wondering uh, what lessons should uh, the American people and its uh, allies abroad be drawing from the example of My Lai? Well, with that, that giant military parade that President Trump has said he wanted to kind of emulate what he saw in Paris last year, uh, I, our Veterans for Peace organization has already come out against having a military parade like that. 
we think it is a it, it only bolsters those who want to use use the military in uh, uh, invading and occupying other countries, and we do not want that. And uh, we 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 will certainly keep in mind uh, what the outgrowth of all of these military incursions uh, is, which is the innocent slaughter of of uh, uh, civilians. And we will be recommitting ourselves to uh, to stop that under the Trump administration. Thank you so much, Anne Wright, for making the time to talk to this uh, very important subject, especially at the end of what must have been for you a very long and emotionally exhausting day. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for your interest in it. And uh, we really appreciate the work that you do. And please keep it up. The, the great uh, spirit. Thank you. Bye for now. We've been speaking with retired U.S. colonel turned peace activist Anne Wright, returning from the site of the My Lai Massacre earlier today. As a Canadian radio program focused on the theme of the Vietnam War, it seems irresistible to delve into the role of Canada in that conflict. Most Canadians seem satisfied that Canada was antagonistic or at least distanced from the U.S.-Indochina conflict, but there is overwhelming documentary evidence to the effect that Canada was entirely complicit in that war. To get some sense of the extent of that involvement, we are joined once again by one of Canada's leading dissident thinkers on the subject of Canadian foreign policy. His name is Eve Engler. He's the author of nine books, including The Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy from 2009, Lester Pearson's Peacekeeping, The Truth May Hurt from 2012, and his latest, A Propaganda System, How Government, Corporations, Media, and Academia Sell War and Exploitation. He joins us now from Montreal. In your 2012 book, Lester Pearson's Peacekeeping, The Truth May Hurt, you point out that far from being antagonistic toward the U.S. war effort, Canada was directly complicit. And you even mentioned numerous occasions where Prime Minister Pearson, as quoted in the parliamentary uh, record uh, known as Hansard, expressed support for the aims and objectives of the U.S. in Vietnam. I mean, it's pretty indisputable, is it not? It's indisputable. Uh, but the overwhelming majority of uh foreign policy literature in this country, particularly from the liberal end of the political spectrum, has been able to uh, convert Lester Pearson into a uh, uh, peace uh, advocate, uh, anti-war advocate, uh, when, you know, as you mentioned in his own words, in the House of Commons, repeatedly uh, sided with the U.S. Uh, war effort and, and in his actions as well. So, for instance, uh, um, huge increase in Canadian weapon sales to the, to the U.S. during during the war, uh, increase in different uh, um, uh, uh, testing of U.S. chemical weapons in CFB uh, Gage Town, uh, explicitly uh, according to internal documents, for uh, sort of rep- replicate the uh, the foliage that existed in, in South Vietnam, so the Americans have a sense of of how it would be uh, useful in South Vietnam. Uh, uh, to uh, Lester Pearson, uh, uh, 
having Canadian officials deliver U.S. bombing threats to the to the North North Vietnamese, and that's why uh, Noam Chomsky has referred to Lester Pearson as a as a war criminal for his role, uh, particularly around delivering U.S. bombing threats to the North Vietnamese, which of course was a, a serious violation of international law and led to hundred thousand plus people being killed. Maybe we should go back to that that period just after the Second World War. I mean, uh, there's this. Uh, uh, International Control Commission, you know, and uh, somehow that was uh, leveraged by then external foreign, no, external affairs minister Pearson, uh, in order to uh, in order to uh, service certain, um, well, essentially U.S. imperial interests. Yeah, so the International Control Commission was set up to uh, bring about the reunif- reunification of North and South Vietnam. Uh, Peacefully, ideally, uh, and uh, Canada was the West's representative. Uh, Poland uh, was the uh, Eastern Bloc's representative, and India was the uh, was the neutral uh, member. So it, Canada was explicitly uh, uh, representing Western interests on this on this commission, um, and uh, so that was understood that that you know Canada was aligned with the U.S. Uh, but then in in the particulars. The Canadian government uh, um, uh, advanced U.S. aims. So, for instance, Canadian uh, ICC commissioners were spying on on uh, the North Vietnamese uh, for the Americans. They were delivering, so they were there because they were part of the International Control Commission. But then they were passing on intelligence uh, to the Americans. As I mentioned, uh, they they uh, delivered U.S. bombing threats that came out in the in the Pentagon Papers. Uh, um, that, that Pentagon Papers being the, the internal American government documents that were leaked uh, detailing U.S. Uh, war objectives, war aims, uh, methods, etc. Uh, and so, so, so Canada was um, uh, aligned with U.S. policy through the, through the International Control Commission. Also, I, you actually want to go back a little bit further and, 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 and French colonialism in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Vietnam uh, Canada provided huge amounts of weaponry through the NATO's mutual assistance program, uh, um, beginning in the early 50s or late 1940s, early 50s, uh, to the French when they were uh, um, suppressing or attempting to suppress uh, uh, colonial resistance in, uh, in in or anti-colonial resistance in, in Vietnam. Are we talking about arms sales? Uh, no, we're actually talking about aid. aid. <laughs> we're talking about giving weaponry, huge amounts of weaponry. Uh, including bullets, uh, including uh, uh, all different forms of, 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 of weaponry. And that's so basically, with the creation of NATO, uh, there was the policy of uh, supporting the uh, uh, NATO powers in Europe uh, by the U.S. and Canada, of providing huge amounts of, uh, of uh, weaponry through aid uh, donations uh, to the British, the French, uh, the, the Portuguese, the, the, the Belgians, while those countries were suppressing independence movements in, in the case of British in Kenya, in the case of the French in Algeria and, and Vietnam, in the case of uh, Belgium in the Congo, uh, and uh, and so that yeah, so this is, this is you know basically uh, post World War II, the European colonial powers were weak, and uh, and. NATO, in large part, was about uh, reasserting European colonial dominance, 
reasserting European core dominance and sort of bringing it under the U.S.-led umbrella. Uh, that's why Americans, of course, provided huge amounts of support uh, where they were paying for much of the, the, the French uh, uh, war efforts in, in Vietnam in the, in the post-World War II period. Um, uh, they, they were, and then they obviously extended that over in, in subsequent decades. Um, they sort of took over formally. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so Canada was, was, uh, basically, uh, supporting the reassertion of, of European colonial dominance. Um, and, uh, and that's what NATO, and that's a large part what NATO was actually entirely, the whole, uh, alliance is, is, was about at the time and, uh, and provided huge amounts of weaponry, uh, for that, uh, for that project. Um, I wanted to get back to something you said earlier about aid to the South Vietnamese uh, regime. When you talk about aid for the South Vietnamese, what, what are you talking about? Well, Canadian aid to, to South Vietnamese um, was basically aligned with, with U.S. Um, uh, pacification efforts, um, with, uh, with U.S. efforts to, to uh, politically dominate uh, South Vietnam. And that's, of course, what the bulk of... Uh, the war effort was uh, U.S. was about in the South Vietnam, uh, um, about asserting their political control and Canadian aid with, uh, allied with uh, with U.S. policy, and that's that's basically the uh, central objective of of, US, of Canadian aid uh, in, in general, which is that I, I've called it the aid aid intervention principle. And so, basically, where you see uh, U.S. and Canadian troops killing people, there was usually uh, lots of Canadian aid going to there, and that's because aid is, first and foremost, a geopolitical tool, a tool of uh, asserting Western uh, 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 power, and, uh, and that, that existed in, in, in Vietnam in the, in the, through the 60s, that existed in Korea in the early 1950s with the Canadian-U.S. war in Korea, that existed more recent years in Afghanistan, huge increase in aid. Uh, in Iraq after the U.S. invasion, in Haiti after the U.S.-Canada uh, intervention there. Um, so aid, aid usually aligns with, uh, with uh, geostrategic interests and most uh, obviously, um, you know, war fighting being the most sort of crass uh, form of uh, assertion of uh, Western geostrategic uh, interests. Mm. Now, you also mentioned uh, earlier about uh, the testing of chemical agents uh, that, you mean, stuff that uh, would ultimately become Agent Orange, uh, testing in the Maritimes. I, I assume we're not just talking about stuff in the laboratory. No, 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 of course. There was, I mean, there's been thousands of people that lived uh, on the base and around the base in, in, in uh, New Brunswick that, uh, uh, that were harmed. Thousands of Canadians ultimately were harmed by the testing. and they were, They've been compensated even by, after decades of, of uh, of, uh, of battle over over the issue um, of campaigning over the issue, they've been you know, compensated by, uh, by, the, by the federal government because of all the illnesses that they suffered. And of course, uh, the people who were living near the base where the testing was going on um, didn't suffer anything close to uh, uh, the, uh, the Vietnamese. And you know, the, the, it actually gets passed down. Um, uh, the, uh, some of the diseases from from the chemical weapons, Agent Orange and others, Purple and others that that were tested in CFB Gagetown, again explicitly with the intention of aiding U.S. war effort, um, uh, you know, continue to have uh, victims in Vietnam, Vietnam today, uh, babies born today that that continue to uh, have birth defects and the like uh, that that flows out of that uh, um, that policy. 
Um, so, so and, and actually, if you go dig deeper into uh, the whole history, Canada has this long history, decades-long history, goes back to World War II, of, uh, of chemical weapons testing, of biological weapons warfare uh, uh, um, testing that was very much aligned with, uh, with U.S. Uh, um, uh, um, uh, testing and, and use of, of these uh, horrific weapons uh, in many different places. I think one of the most common... Uh, things people think about with regard to Canada in Vietnam is providing support for the the draft dodgers uh, that that were coming into Canada, and uh, I mean that that does seem to be at least one positive coming out of it. I mean, what, what would your reply be to to some of the people who kind of hold that up as uh, you know a, maybe a slight compensation? Clearly, a good thing. Clearly, uh, opening borders to People who didn't want to go kill people in, in, in Vietnam was a was a was a uh, the right thing to do from from the Canadian government's uh, uh, perspective, and and so in that sense, you know, should be uh, should definitely be applauded. But it, it needs to be looked at in a broader context, which is Canada's alignment broadly uh, with with the uh, with the U.S. war effort. And uh, and in, and one of the things this is not the only example. I think also in the case of Chile in 1973, there was lots of Chileans that were were led in led into Canada um, uh, after Canada supported the U.S. back coup in, in Chile in '73. So a lot of a lot of people they they see that there was you know Chileans allowed in, there was American draft dodgers allowed in, and then that provides uh, a sort of uh, um, it, it provides a sort of sense that Canada was you know doing doing well and you know by the war or against the war or whatever. But but the, uh, you have to look at some of the dynamics at play of of in terms of letting the draft dodgers in. For instance, it's partly it was a response to, to anti-war movements uh, in this country opposing Canada-U.S. policy in Vietnam, uh, and partly so 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 those anti-war movements you know made some gains, and one of the gains they sort of made was uh, a better policy around the draft dodgers. Um, but but uh, it also needs to be looked at in the context that from the from the standpoint of the King government. Um, these were often educated, um, you know, sort of uh, Americans who were often sort of better off. It was it was uh, younger people who who uh, who you know often contributed quite quickly to the Canadian economy. So so it was viewed as and it often you know generally white. Um, uh, so it was viewed as a uh, pretty good uh, migrants to be to be to be to be allowing in or getting in. Um, but but it undoubtedly needs to be. Uh, Needs to be applauded uh, 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 that uh, Canada let uh, uh, tens and tens of thousands of Americans in. But it also should be mentioned that there were tens of thousands of Canadians who fought in Vietnam. There were tens of thousands of Canadians who joined the U.S. military to fight. Um, and you know, there's something called the Foreign Enlistment Act in this country, which uh, uh, was set up in during the Spanish Civil War when the Canadian government didn't want Canadians to go fight on behalf of the. Uh, the Republican uh, Democratic forces against Franco in the, in the 1930s in Spain, and uh, and uh, you know the Foreign Enlistment Act is a little complicated about what what violates the Foreign Enlistment Act, but the Canadian government wasn't uh, attempting to stop Canadians from joining the American military to fight in Vietnam. Um, so there's you know another side to the to the history of of uh, cross border uh, people flows that uh, that uh, should also be uh, discussed. 
I'm going to ask just one more point from you, um, and maybe it's a bit of a sidebar, but uh, you, you mentioned uh, about the, the Chomsky's uh, encounter with Zosky and the idea that uh, they should rename the Pearson International Airport the uh, War Criminal Airport or, or something to that effect. And I, I'm wondering, I mean, we're living in a time when they're talking about uh, pulling down the statues of, of generals who fought uh, in the Civil War on the Confederate side uh, or, or the John A. MacDonald, who's you know notorious for his... Uh, um, you know, his uh, involvement in the oppression of indigenous peoples in the in Canada. And I'm wondering if consistent with that principle, I mean, if, if your, your serious thoughts about whether Pearson's name should be on an international airport, given his no, background. I, I think the Toronto airport should be renamed. Unbelievably, Pearson is portrayed um, uh, by much of the left, far into the left, even to sort of almost at the radical end of, of the Canadian left as this sort of benevolent uh, anti-war kind of figure. And in the case of Vietnam, the most ever cited uh, speech of a Canadian politician uh, pro- supposedly opposing U.S. war was in the case of Vietnam. And uh, um, this is a speech in 1965 at Temple University where Pe- Pearson supposedly opposed the U.S. war uh, effort of Vietnam, and it continues to be cited regularly today. In that speech, I quote, Lester Pearson said, the government and great majority of people of my country have supported wholeheartedly the U.S. peacekeeping and peacemaking policies in Vietnam, end quote. So he says explicitly that they supported the, quote, American peacekeeping efforts in Vietnam, yet this speech at Temple University in 1965 is the most ever uh, uh, cited supposed anti-war speech by a Canadian politician uh, against U.S. war. And, and uh, um, uh, the, in basically all that Pearson did in the speech was he opposed or he called for a short-term cessation of U.S. bombing of North Vietnam, supported the whole war effort in the South, called for a short-term tactical uh, uh, ending of bombing in, in North Vietnam. Um, and this has been blown up. And t- we still see it in papers uh, every you know six months a year today, um, blown up as this great anti-war speech, even though he's explicitly in favor of U.S. war policy, um, and it's an incredible comment on the sort of foreign policy uh, uh, intelligentsia and their ability to to just completely rewrite the historical record um, when that record you know doesn't serve their objectives and and rewrite it in a way to you know portray Canada as a as a benevolent uh, international force, which obviously has uh, uh, important political political ramifications uh, today. Eve Engler, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking with author and Canadian foreign policy critic Eve Engler. You can find an archive of his articles at the website eveengler.com. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.